Grace and peace to you. Welcome to Church History Matters. This is episode two. My name is Joseph Knowles. And my name is Ruben Rosales, a born-again contrarian. <laughs> Thought of that on the way over here. That's pretty good. Yeah. What are right. we talking about today? Um, well, uh, this is what it was 2019. So earlier this year, we celebrated the anniversary for a very important event in church history. And I guess we want to talk about it a little bit since it was mentioned today earlier at a celebration of life of a dear, wonderful brother, George. Um, his, his daughter mentioned Calvinism. And uh, it's something that is often brought up among Christians, uh, especially the five points of Calvinism, which actually is something that we should talk about if we're going to discuss church history. So where would you say we should start that discussion? Well, we would start it, um, or the, the year that we're going to get to eventually is uh, 1619. And that's important because that's when the Synod of Dort, which meant, met in the... Um, the Dutch city of Dordrecht, or shortened to Dort, um, convened a, a national synod. That's just a, a gathering of um, various theologians uh, from throughout the Netherlands, or what we now know as the Netherlands, and various other countries were invited as well. But they um, eventually did a lot of a lot of things at the synod. But uh, probably the most, the one of most lasting importance. Uh, was drafting what came to be known as the Canons of Dort. And um, that's kind of where we've come to know what people typically refer to as the five points of Calvinism. So that's where we're headed. They actually passed those in April, May of 1619. Um, So like I kind of alluded to uh, last time we talked, we kind of shot right past that anniversary date. Um, but we're still in the same year, the 400th year after that happened. So we're going to count it. We're going to move ahead and, and talk about it. So that's that's kind of where we're going to end up, talk about what's in those, uh, what prompted the Synod to meet, and uh, what they were sp- responding to and all those kind of things. So here's a question because uh, I know a lot of folks, especially my wife and <laughs> others that, that are like her, uh, you know, some words that might not make any sense, canon. Uh, synod. Uh, you discussed synod, but what, what is a canon? What is, what is, why is it called the canons of Dort? Right. We're not talking about um, large pieces of 18th century artillery. This is uh, canon with uh, only two ends, not three, so C-A-N-O-N. And these are, when we're talking about the canons of Dort or similar type documents, are um, succinct statements of doctrine. So um, when they're meeting at Dort to uh, resolve these issues or talk through them, um, their goal ultimately is to come up with a, a statement that people can look at and say, here is what we as a church affirm and believe drawn from Scripture. So that's that's what we're talking about. Right. So there's also the can- what would be, you hear this in common uh, sci-fi culture, right, when they talk about, oh, this isn't in the official canon of uh, Star Wars or Star right. Trek or any of the the geek movies. I love those movies, but you know, right. there's they, they get really uh, bothered about these things, right? Well, that's not canon. You can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't count. Right. Um, and we also have what's called the canon of Scripture, which we believe is closed. It's complete. Um, I think complete is a better word than closed. Right. But uh, God's revealed to us 
in Scripture all that we need to know and all that he has desired for us to know. But one of the things that I liked uh, about talking in regards to the canon of Scripture is that it's a measurement of what is acceptable and what is not. Yeah. Um, so the canon of Scripture is, is it canonical? Is it a canonical book? Is it a book that stands the test? Does it measure up to our requirements? And so I think it's a good, um, a good way of looking at canons of Dort um, to understand what well, does this measure up? Mm-hmm. Is this to par um, with what we believe the faith actually says and what the faith teaches through God's revealed word? That's good. And uh, that is where we're going to end up, and, but it's also a history podcast. So we're going <laughs> to talk about doctrine, but we're also going to talk about the history. And I alluded earlier to the Netherlands as where this took place. That's not completely accurate because the Netherlands as the Netherlands didn't really exist in 1619. It would have been, um, and the, the reason for that is much of what we know today as Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands was actually ruled by directly, indirectly by Spain from the early 1550s until the 17, um, the early 1700s. Um, so just to put you in the timeline of history here, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the, the church door, the castle church door in Wittenberg, it's 1517. Um, the Reformation kind of, sort of, comes to the Low Countries in the 1520s in the form of the Anabaptists. Um, that's kind of a topic for a whole different <laughs> podcast, um, where the Anabaptists fit in. in yeah, I could spend a couple hours there. Probably. Right, yeah, we, we definitely could. Just sift um, through all the correct and incorrect stuff. Absolutely. So that's the 1520s, but really coming south from France and the French-speaking parts of Switzerland, which of course is where John Calvin was, um, really is when in, in the 1540s the Reformation that magisterial reformation, the figures everyone is more familiar with, um, takes root and get, grabs a hold in the low countries in those areas, um, particularly in the northern parts of the country. So you've got southern parts of more Catholic, northern parts really broke from the Roman Catholic Church and from Spain. Why is that significant? Well, at the time, you've got um, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, the Habsburg dynasty, which dominated Europe for centuries. Um, he takes off, abdicates the throne in 1556. But who does that leave on the throne? The famous Philip II of the Spanish Armada, or as we might want to put it, the very, very Catholic Philip II. Um, so he is determined that Protestantism is not going to be a thing in his realms. He's defending what he sees as the, uh, the Catholic faith and he goes so far as to send an army to the low countries to tell them just exactly what he thinks of their religious and political rebellion. Hmm. Um, and I don't want to drone on too much, try to get us to where we eventually want to go. Um, the Kind of the George Washington of, of the United Provinces of the Netherlands was William the Silent. Um, he joined the Reformed Church, and um, he was that George Washington figure, but it definitely sets up this... Now, it's not just a political conflict, it's become religious, because you've got Catholic Philip, you've got very Protestant William on the other side. So over the course of this, um, what came to be known as the 80 Years' War, because of how long it lasted, um, but also just 
more generally thinking about it as the Dutch War for Independence. Um, there's definitely a religious element to this conflict. So we're trying to get to 1619. Before we get there, um, the fighting was um, was intense for quite a long time. I think we can go back even further, didn't we? we, we I mean, there were some uh, some other things that happened in the 14, no, 15, 15 early mid 1500s. You're right. Um, something that led up to what knowing so we talk about the Senate of Dort. It was a response to the remonstrance, <clears throat> the remonstrance of uh, 1610? 15, 16, 16, 16. Yeah, 1610. Remonstrance of 1610. And uh, these were just students of a specific teacher, and, and everyone's very familiar with Justin, Ar- Justin right? Justin Arminius. Jacob. Jacob. Or James. James. Or Jacobus. Jacobus. <laughs> Arminius. Um, he's got a much more complicated actual last name. Hermansun. Yeah, I'm not going to attempt the Dutch pronunciation. Um, Jacob, I think, is about as much as of that as I want to attempt. Right. Yeah. So these were his students that, after he, you know, he died, um, they drafted what was known as the Remonstrance of 1610, um, the Remonstrance of 1610, and uh, something happened that that led to this guy being actually in the position where he had students. And so what was what was that? What caused Jacobus Arminius to become uh, someone that was prominent enough to have students that would be so bold as to have a draft something like this and to mm-hmm. be so bold and to put it out there to the greater church? Right. Well, indirectly... Um, and you alluded to this. We can go all the way back to the mid 14th century. So yeah. we're talking about the 1300s now. Oh wow! Um, which is, if you if you know your medieval history, or even if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Um, <laughs> you've got what what's now come to be known as the Black Death. So this is the bubonic plague. It's sweeping eastward, making uh, a comeback in the west coast of the United States. Never mind. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm going to go there. Um, but it just ravages Europe. Uh, some estimates say possibly killing as much as 60% of the wow. entire European continent. Um, so it was really, really bad um, in the middle of the, that 14th century. But it would continue to be an issue over the next several centuries, actually. You'd have sm- these smaller outbreaks that were popping up from city to city. Uh, but because of, I mean, not monumental advances, they still didn't have anything near what what we have here in the 21st century in terms of uh, medical knowledge and care, but they you know, figured out that maybe it's a good thing if we take all of our waste material to be polite and put that outside of the city instead mm-hmm. of in the streets. Um, small things like that. So they were a little bit better able to confine it, but they still popped up. It's interesting enough. That's the stuff that God had commanded his uh, people to do. Yes. Very uh, Very long ago. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you have these outbreaks. Um, one outbreak in particular um, came around 1602-1603 in the city of Leiden, where there was a university in the United Provinces, and you know, sadly, it killed off two of the theology professors at the university there. Um, and when they went to hire a replacement professor, one of those was none other than um, the man of the hour, I guess. Jacobus Arminius. Um, so that's how we get the title of the episode. Um, and indirectly, the Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague gives us 
the so-called five points of Calvinism, which are um, frequently summarized with the acronym TULIP. So that kind of brings us up to at least now we're in the 17th century, right? Yes. Which is where we're where we want to camp out for That's most right. of our time. Um, so he's there as a theology professor. There were questions about what he believed, and it was, you know, he had some hurdles to jump over actually to get that appointment um, because some people were a little bit unsure about where he stood on these things. Based and on rightfully so. I mean, right? If you're going to have, I mean, I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but, you know, um, Al Mohler's in a very similar position uh, today. And it's kind of funny, you know, it's one of the things we talk about why church history matters is because these problems seem to always come up um, and they resurface in some different shape and some different disguise. They're repackaging. And when you're in charge of placing someone that's going to be teaching the pastors of the congregations within your country, that's a big deal. And uh, I believe it was, um, I can't believe him, I don't have my notes. Um, about the research that I did that said um, they asked Arminius to defend, like, what is it that you actually believe and what are you going to teach? And he was able to affirm, much like um, many of the professors uh, at our seminaries are required to, affirm a statement of faith saying, this is what I believe, this is what I will teach, and, and that was required. So all the way back into, you know, 1600s, we had people... Um, it was necessary for these professors to affirm a certain position mm -hmm. with regards to their statement of faith. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that made, and still kind of makes it um, notoriously difficult to pin down where Arminius stood, is the fact that during his lifetime, none of his writings were published. Mm -hmm. So um, there was no document that you could point to to say, well, yes, he said he affirms that, but look what he wrote over here. Yeah. It was all, I mean, he had private writings and private letters, um, but no published writings until after he died, um, which actually happened in 1609, of October, into October that year. That's also a significant year because in April of that year, the two sides in the Eighty Years' War, Spain and the United Providence, call a ceasefire. And we get what would come to be known as the Twelve Years' Truce because it lasts until 1621. So... What often happens um, with Christians and other church groups when they don't have uh, one person to fight, they turn and they fight each other. So um, some of these, the conflicts within the Dutch church had been simmering beneath the surface. So let's, let's take care of the uh, Spanish Catholic army that's trying to kill us all, and then we can worry about these other doctrinal questions that we don't agree on. Well, now during this ceasefire, um, they've got some time to spend on that. So that's kind of what they do. Wow. Um, and another part of why that didn't happen, because this has gone to, um, and us being Americans, we tend to think of the strict separation between church and state, and they don't have anything to do with each other, and the government doesn't get involved in church squabbles, but that was certainly not the case at this time. It was unheard of. It's a very uh, modern notion, and some respects a very American notion um, but you'd actually had Arminius and some of his opponents um, go before effectively what was the Congress of um, the United Provinces at that time to try to get this religious dispute resolved so um, that this took place in 1608 
where Arminius gives um, his declaration of sentiments. Um, he and another guy named Franciscus Gomeres or Gomeres or however you want to pronounce that go to the Supreme Court in The Hague in the Netherlands. They argue their positions, um, but they really didn't resolve anything. Um, there was a certain level of toleration for these. Um, now we know them as Arminians. At the time, they wouldn't have been called that, of course, but um, we'll call them dissenting at this point. Right, and also it's important to note that these folks wouldn't also be called Calvinists beforehand either right, right. right so i think this is already several many many years past um the protestant reformation mm -hmm. right so calvin wasn't even anywhere in this picture right um so it's, it's important to note that as well right the the people that held to uh, reformed christian orthodoxy were not known as calvinists mm -hmm. right so they he gets, I mean, they get to the, the governing body, and that actually, they've been trying to avoid calling a national synod because they really did want to try to avoid the issue, but ultimately it have to be, there had to be, had to, using air quotes, government involvement to get that national synod called to finally and decisively resolve these issues. So the government didn't want to until 1617, when you have a change of government. Um, now you've got... Um, effectively, the Calvinist coming into political power, uh, Prince Maurice, who was the son of William the Orange, um, who um, helpfully had on his side the army, um, he gets into power, and they finally do call for a national synod to address the theology of what had been presented in the Remonstrance of 1610. So now we're all the way up to 1618 when the synod convenes, and we're finally going to get down to brass tacks, and they're going to talk this through and come to come to a conclusion. Um, now, right away, the supporters of Arminius, um, led by another guy at that time, um, objected, and they weren't really wild about the idea of coming to this national synod because they weren't going to get the pe pick the people who would be the representatives. So they were very worried that this was going to be kangaroo court. Um, the outcome is determined before we ever get there. Mm. But eventually they do show up. Um, it's also pretty significant as, as a, just as a, a council or a synod of the church because it did not just involve um, the Dutch Reformed, but they also invited delegates from the other countries where the Reformation had really taken root. So um, they invite delegates from England and from Scotland they invited from France, although at the time um, France was ruled by, ruled by Catholic monarchs, so most of all or all of them that were invited were not able to come or not allowed to come from France. And there are also some delegates from Switzerland. So I think that's the significance um, of the Synod itself is that it's not just this local council hmm. of these Dutch Reformed churches meeting up to decide an issue that was particular to them, although it started there, I think what they saw is that this is bigger than just us. This is not just an issue for right. our churches here. This is something that Christianity at large needs to be aware of and needs to deal with. I think there's also something to be discussed there with regards to the role that government actually has in uh, ruling over the people, right, and, and exercising that arm of God's providence. Um, if they 
probably saw the writing on the wall. This is not going to go away. This is a problem that needs to be, uh, there needs to be a synod, right, to discuss it. Mm -hmm. So how many people in all were actually there at the synod, and how long did it last? Well, it actually lasted from around um, December, November of 1618. That's when the Arminians show up was in um, December. Um, there were, and I'm here I'm citing from uh, the History of Protestantism by uh, Reverend J.A. Wiley. Um, there were 26 from the United Provinces, 28 foreign divines, 5 theological professors, and 16 laymen. Hmm. They actually set aside uh, an amount that would be equivalent to about $6 million, according to estimates that I can find, to pay for it. And it's going to carry through all the way until uh, May of 1619, so about six months. Wow. So six months. And what these were, what, several sessions, many hours a day mm -hmm. um, of discussion, trying to wrestle with um, what the remonstrance had presented and published. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is interesting also to look at because this was uh, – before I don't know, I don't remember what year the printing press came out, but yeah, well after yeah, yeah, but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like stuff was just readily available right right now. I mean, right now, if I want to find out the remonstrance of 1610, I can pull up my phone, open it up, and find it immediately. Uh, so it was it was a big deal that this kind of information was so problematic and causing so much of a uh, a divide that they felt that it needed to get addressed, right? Because things traveled a lot slower back then. Mm -hmm. And then to also understand that they spent six months hashing these issues out. And I think it also speaks to the, the reason why it's important that we study church history. These things matter. Um, it matters to God and it should matter to us. And, and even including the finer points of theology. You know, a lot of people uh, are not equipped to deal with it, you know, to go in deeper to the finer points of theology, and that's fine. It's not necessary for salvation. However, it is something that those that have been gifted with an understanding should definitely exercise it and practice um, and use that gift that God's given them to study and to teach and to uh, help others understand more about God's story. Absolutely. And um, there was, so we're going to, I think we'll, We'll talk through these five articles of remonstrance and kind of summarize what those are, what they're claiming there. I think it was interesting that, uh, like I said before, the, the Arminians um, or that camp um, arrive at the Synod and they're trying, they're giving their speeches, they're def or supposed to be there defending their position. And eventually, the uh, in about middle of January, the president of the Synod gets a little fed up. Um, because he didn't feel like they were actually addressing the mm -hmm. things that they had been called there to address. Um, so he basically told him to get out. Wow. <laughs> so after the middle of January, um, the, um, the um, remonstrants or the Arminians were not present at the Synod, mm -hmm. which was partially by the choice of the president who might have... Oh, it was definitely a choice. Right, it was definitely a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he might, have, he might have overstepped his bounds there a little. I don't know. Um, but they also kind of put themselves in that position to a certain extent by dancing around the issue mm -hmm. rather than um, really just 
uh, biting the bullet and saying, no, here's what we believe and here's why we believe it. They'd kind of already done that in the remonstrance, but they wanted to really um, dig down in and see, all right, here's why do you say this? What's your basis for believing that? So that's right. kind of what we'll talk through. Um, so I guess the best way to do that is just um, go through these. Um, now, these the, the Articles of Remonstrance are actually, or the Remonstrance of 1610 is a rather lengthy document, but they helpfully gave us a summary of their five articles. Um, so that's what we're going to work from. Yeah, so we're going to, I think, if, if it was important enough to ruffle, uh, rustle some jimmies back in the uh, 1600s, uh, when there was no internets, I think it's definitely important enough for us to discuss it now. Uh, so you would just go one at a time. You yeah. read one, I'll read one. That, that makes sense. sense. All and right. If, if somebody wants to look at these for themselves, one place you can find them is at the website remonstrancepodcast.com. So How do you spell remonstrance? Remonstrance. Well, that would be R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-C-E. Or if you want to look up demon... And then trance, demons, trance, but replace the D with an R, and you got remonstrance. Everyone will probably remember that a lot Co- better than coincidence. I, <laughs> I think not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, I'll go. I'll go and start. Um, five articles of the remonstrance. Uh, article one: That God, by an eternal, unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ His Son, before the foundation of the world hath determined out of the fallen sinful race of men to save in Christ for Christ's sake um, and through Christ those who through the grace of the Holy Ghost shall believe on his son Jesus and shall persevering this faith and obedience of faith through this grace even to the end and on the other hand to leave the incorrigible and unbelieving in sin and under wrath and to condemn as alienate from Christ according to the word of the gospel in John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but wrath of God abideth on him, and according to other passages of Scripture also. So essentially, what's that saying? In simple, plain English. Um, so I think the, the basic idea there is that election is conditional. If you look at that first part, um, what's it conditional on? Well, conditional on your belief and your perseverance in the faith and your persevering in the obedience of faith. So uh, a lot we can say on that, but that's just the summary there that I would give. Um, unless yeah, you have anything to add to that, we'll... Mm, no, no, absolutely not. Okay. I think that's good. The summary of Article 2 says that Agreeably thereto, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all, by his death on the cross, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer, according to the word of of the Gospel of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in the first epistle of John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So how can we summarize that one? Or what would be the... Um, it's essentially describing the atonement that is limited in nature to um, only those that um, profess faith in Christ. 
and uh, this is actually almost kind of the view of one of our friends who will remain nameless um, that he believes in the Christus Victor view of the atonement in which Christ has accomplished uh, salvation for all men and now they must accept it mm -hmm. right so the atonement meaning the forgiveness of their sins is paid for already but they have to accept it right that's pretty good how about article three article three that man has not saving grace himself nor of the energy of his free will inasmuch as he in the state of apostasy and sin can of and by himself neither thing will nor do anything that is truly good such as having saving faith eminently is but that it is needful that he be born again of god in christ through his holy spirit and renewed in understanding inclination or will and all his powers in order that he may rightly understand think will and effect what is truly good according to the word of christ in john fifteen five, it says without me ye can do nothing that's a that is a beautiful article <laughs> Right. And I have to I have to apologize because I think I'm the one who compiled these articles. It looks like there's a typo. Um, one time in there where you said thing, it should have been think. Ah. Right. And yes, and that this is kind of um, very interesting because ultimately in their response, the Synod of Dort has four heads of doctrine, then the Remonstrance has five articles. And these, this one and the fourth one, we're going to see when we get into discussing that, we'll see why. But yeah, I, I agree with you. As stated, um, this is very much in line um, with the idea of radical depravity mm -hmm. or total depravity, mm -hmm. um, that we are born in a state of original sin as human beings, and that absolutely our inclinations, our wills, our understandings, all of our powers have been corrupted by that sin. And as, as I say there at the end, um, without God, we can do nothing. So, yep. even to itself, receive, yeah, even to receive that uh, that salvation, we can't right. do it on our own. Right. So, taking by itself, Article Three is actually pretty good. But yeah. then we come to Article Four. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it says it says this um, that this grace of God is the beginning, continuance, and accomplishment of all good, even to this extent that the regenerate man himself, without prevenient or assisting, awaking, following, and cooperative grace can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil, so that all good deeds or movements that can be conceived must be ascribed to the grace of God in Christ. But as respects the mode of the operation of this grace, it is not irresistible, inasmuch as it is written concerning many that they have resisted the Holy Ghost mm. and elsewhere in many places. <laughs> Man. Okay. So, basically, it is possible to resist the will. Resi not only resist, but it seems to imply, however minutely, that there might even be the ability to uh, withstand God's will, uh, to even prevent it. Mm -hmm. If it is God's will that you should be great, uh, saved uh, by grace through faith, then it is possible for you to overcome that, to resist it, and to lose 
your salvation, mm-hmm. so the, essentially, yeah. which is what the fifth, I believe, right. point goes into discussing. Yeah. And that's a little bit longer, so why don't we go ahead and, and jump into there, and maybe we'll come back into some other points. All right. Uh, those who are incorporated into Christ by a true faith and have thereby become partakers of his life-giving spirit have thereby full power to strive against Satan, sin, the world, and their own flesh, and to win the victory. It being well understood that it is ever through the assisting grace of the Holy Ghost and that Christ assists them through his spirit in all temptations, extends to them his hand, and if only they are ready for the conflict and desire his help and are not inactive, keeps them from falling, so that they, by no craft or power of Satan, can be misled or plucked out of Christ's hands, according to the word of Christ in John 10, 28, which says, But uh, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, but whether they are capable, uh, end quote, uh, but whether they are capable through negligence or forsaking again the first beginnings of their life in Christ, of again returning to this present evil world, of turning away from the holy doctrine which was delivered to them, of losing a good conscience, of becoming void of grace, that must be more particularly determined out of the Holy Scripture before we ourselves can teach it with full persuasion of our minds. So it's kind of a cop out there at the end. <laughs> right. They but. definitely do kind of kind of punt on this one. And um, that's kind of, it's almost funny because um, if you, there's a lot of discussion of the you know so-called five points of Calvinism, but the one that everybody seems to like is the P. Yeah. Everybody likes the perseverance of the saints. Everybody likes the idea of, once saved, always saved. Mm-hmm. That phrase has been much abused. Oh, yes. But the idea that once you are one of God's, there's nothing that anybody can mm. do, not even yourself, That's right. to change that is uh, such a reassuring thing um, that it's, it's almost weird to me that we, we want, at least want to grab that one because everybody seems to like it. But although they do punt, I think ultimately what they're doing is being... Consistent. consistent. Yep, they are being absolutely consistent. being consistent. Um, and this was something that I read recently in a book by uh, Dr. Tom Nettles, who's a, uh, one of the professors at the uh, Southern Baptist Seminaries, and he teaches church history. Um, but he said, really, that P, the perseverance of the saints, you can't have that without at least unconditional election. Irresistible ir- grace. Irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those two. You cannot have it. It's not, impossible. Not consistently. Not consistently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that gets us through the five articles of the Remonstrance. There is much and much and much that could be said. In fact, there's much that was said. Through mm. it's, it's a it's a lengthy document, um, but it's absolutely absolutely worth your time. Um, and if you want a good modern translation, you can find one in a book that was put out this year by Dr. Robert Godfrey. Um, called Saving the Reformation. So he's gone back and actually, um, with with some assistance, but uh, he's he knows the language enough to um, to do it his own, to translate it out of the Latin, because hmm. that was a scholarly, scholarly language of the time. Right. Even though everybody was Dutch and English and French, um, to put it in Latin. So anyway, say all that to say that he has an excellent translation in his book, Saving the Reformation, which you can find wherever books I'm sold are sold. I'm sure <laughs> I get no commission for that, but the book is really good. Man, um, there's so many books that could be read, but 
one of the things that's beautiful about podcasts is one of the reasons why we decided to do this is, is because a lot of people don't read. And it's helpful when you can just pop something on the stereo and listen to it rather than having to spend hours and hours, you know, weeks even right. reading a book um, or an article or doing the research. It's hard work. And uh, we hope to do as good a job as we can. That God will give us the strength to continue this. And we hope that you learned at least a little bit of something today. And as always, it's our it's our desire to not only honor God, but to equip the saints, the church of today, by studying the church of yesterday. Amen to that. Yes. All right. Thanks for joining us. And we'll hopefully you'll be back next time and, when we continue to talk about these and things. And thanks for stopping by. But mostly stay classy. Bye.